uh, at looking at the tabernacle and we're getting towards the end of the 40 days that Moses spent on the mountain. So stick with me. We're almost there. He's going to come back down and it's going to get way worse and more dramatic. It's going to be awesome. And so uh, this morning as we're looking at the tabernacle, I, I wanted to take just a moment to back away to get in a 747, to get up to cruising altitude, and to look down over the big picture. Because sometimes, as we're looking at these tabernacle implements, we can get in so in close to the minutia of what's going on in the passage that we forget about what's this book even about. And the book of Exodus is called Exodus, and the word Exodus means a mass departure of people. And what's interesting about that is that as the people have departed, chapter 1 through 18, if you mention the book of Exodus, most people think of Charlton Heston parting the Red Sea and, and the people coming out of slavery, which is wonderful. But that's like half the book. It's not the whole thing. Because guess what? God hasn't just called us to depart physically from the world. He's called us to depart spiritually and enter into abundant life with him. So chapter 1 through 18, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt physically. And many of you probably have experienced this, that at one point in your life, you tried to reform what was going on to create different habits and patterns in your life, and you found out that though that helped for a time, it was only part of the battle. Because I can leave all the circumstances and situations. Jesus actually said, if your right eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But does that really deal with the sin issue, or does that just take away your ability to do everything? And the reality is, God was trying to tell them it has nothing to do with your hand or your eye. Sin starts here. And so God has to give us a new heart a heart that's actually prone to worship God instead of ourselves. And so chapter 19 through 40, God's in the process of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, not just physically, but now spiritually. He's trying to restore true worship to the one true king. Who to worship? And then prescribing how to worship him. And so that's the important part. The, the Christian life is not just about salvation. It's also about that sanctification process that he continues. And so, as we're looking at the tabernacle, I want to point out something that maybe I've kind of neglected to do, and that's that the, the place where the Israelites are to worship and meet with God, right? We've looked at that. We know that. God's setting this up. He's telling Moses how to make this place where on earth they can meet with God as a nation and atone for their sin. And that's a piece of it. But then the, another piece is that's a physical representation. It's a foretelling. It's a dress rehearsal for the ministry that Jesus Christ would fulfill on earth. He, he's going to fulfill all these implements and, and what the, the screen and the veil and, and all the... We've talked about the colors and what they represent. We've talked about the implements inside. We've talked about the, the lampstand and the table of showbread and the mercy seat. And all of those things are that things that would Christ would do on earth for you and I. But then there's a third part. It's an earthly representation of God's throne room in heaven. So we're getting a glimpse, whether we realize it or not, into the heavenly throne room. The thing that was built by the Israelites on earth, it was a tent. It's a temporary dwelling. But in heaven, the throne room of God is eternal. 
It's outside of time. It lasts forever. It doesn't fade. It doesn't need maintained. It doesn't need the, the pieces replaced over time. It doesn't rot. It's not sitting on dirt. It's pure. It's holy. There's no sacrifices to make it holy. It's already that way because God dwells there. And so we're going to see that in our study today. So as we start chapter 30 and verse 1, God says to Moses, You shall make an altar to burn incense on, and you shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its width, it shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, its horns with pure gold, and you shall make it, make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it or to carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it before the veil that is outside the ark of the testimony. Remember, the veil was uh, a thing you had to go through to get to the Holy of Holies. Not just anybody can go in there, but outside of the Holy of Holies, outside of the veil, is this ark, or excuse me, this, this um, altar for um, incense. And he says it's to be in front of, or before the mercy seat that's over the testimony, and this is the place where I will meet with you. So Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense. So in the morning incense to burn. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, in other words, when sun is going down at dusk, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it. And he's going to give the recipe for exactly what kind of incense to burn. You don't get to go to your favorite candle shop and pick out your incense. It's, it's the prescribed incense. It has a particular scent to it. And you shall not offer burnt offering, so this wasn't for offering whole burnt sacrifices, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. It's specifically for incense only. So verse 10 says, And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it. Throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord." And so, what is an incense burner for? We've talked about what all the other implements are for, but in this particular case, I'm going to take you to Psalm chapter 141, where King David writes down in his prayer before the Lord, he says, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me. So he's meeting with God in his prayer. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So he compared the incense to his prayers, which is interesting because in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah, his lot was cast and he was of the Levitical priesthood, he goes before the altar and he's offering incense when God reveals to him, hey, in your old age... Even though you guys have been barren, I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to name him John. 
And they were so old that he was surprised by this. But this is where God met with Zechariah. Well, the interesting part about that, and I didn't know this first service, there was someone who shared with me, that in the writings it says that the reason they were standing outside, there would always be a group of people outside of the tabernacle waiting for the incense smoke to rise up because they believed that they prayed and their prayers stayed there in the tabernacle until the incense rose up and they could see it. And that was them going, God's receiving our prayers before his throne. So they were waiting there, not for Zechariah to come back out. They were waiting for the thing that he was doing on their behalf, which is offering the incense, making it possible for their prayers to reach into God's throne room. It's pretty cool. And so morning and evening, these sacrif- this a sacrifice of incense was to be done. At the morning when the sun rose, and at the evening when the sun would go down, which made me think of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. Because there Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in verse 16, he says to them, rejoice always. And then he says, pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. A perpetual offering is what he's just said in this last passage, right? And so as he says, pray without ceasing, this is, a command, this is a, an instruction to you and I When are we to pray? And yes, you're right. Always. Every time. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I guess all we can do is pray. And that is where we get to, right? But that's not how it should be. We should start by praying. Start your day and lift up everything as incense to the Lord. Put it on the altar, as we say. Let it burn up. And then it won't burn you up. And, and then in the evening to pray, to take, I don't know about you guys, but when I get to the end of the day, I'm more burdened than I was first thing in the morning. And I can either go to sleep with all that stuff hanging on my back and on my chest, or I can take it out on my family. I've never done that. Or I can at the end of my day, whenever I feel the most burdened, maybe it's when you get home from work. Maybe it's on the drive home from work. Maybe you don't want to take it out on your family. Maybe you want to leave it on the altar. And that's an opportunity to say, Lord, I'm burdened. I got all this stuff. You tell me your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So I'm going to, could I exchange my burden for yours? (laughs) Maybe I could give that to you and then I can let it be burnt up on the altar and then I can rest in peace. Do you know that rest in peace is not something that God has ordained for us to do when we die? But it's, he said, my peace I leave with you now in this life. Boy, this world could use some of that. And it begins with us not trying to be the peacemakers, but instead asking God for his peace that passes understanding, that doesn't make sense. And so the incense altar is a picture of this. And I want you to turn to Revelation in chapter 8. Because we, remember I told you, the tabernacle is a, it's a, it's a dress rehearsal for what heaven's going to be like. And in Revelation chapter 8, we see a vision through the pen of what John wrote down. God revealed to him, John the Revelator, this revelation of Jesus Christ shows us the throne room of God. And as we get there, we see this heavenly reality in verse 1 where it says, when when Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with. with. So he's given incense, just like in the tabernacle, but he's given this incense that he should offer it with the prayers of who? All the saints. There's the saints and there's the ain'ts. And the reality is, we think saints are in stained glass. But church, we're the saints. Not because of our own righteousness. Maybe you're like, well, I don't really resound with that. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Based on what he has done. And so it says here that the... The, the golden censer came and stood the altar. He was given incense. An angel was given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. No longer outside the veil, but inside right next to the throne room. And as it burns up, uh, the Lord is receiving it. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it to the earth. So not only do our prayers matter to God, but they are a sweet aroma to God. He's pleased when we rely upon him. If you've ever seen a little baby talk to their mama, she just doesn't matter what they say. They're so happy about it. God is that and so much more. He hears his children speaking to him, trusting him with their burdens, and he's pleased. He's not overwhelmed. He, he can take it, good, bad, otherwise. And notice this in, in verse 5. It says that the, the incense from the altar that was burning, uh, after at the end of the age, there will be judgment because of our prayers that are kept in this specific place as aroma before God. It says that when, when this judgment comes, that he actually takes our prayers, maybe some of the prayers you didn't think were answered, and God said, wait, it's not time yet. And then he pours them out on the earth, and the earth receives judgment because of our prayers. Now, I'm not implying that we should pray for the judgment of our enemies. Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who revile you, those who deceitfully use you or spitefully use you. But at the end of the age, when, when the, the opportunity to be saved is gone, the opportunity to humble ourselves before the Father is gone, the reality is, that there will be judgment, and part of that judgment will be mingled with what we have prayed for people, for their salvation and everything else. And what I love about God is that when we pray, we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to pray all the exact right phrases or even with the right heart. God can sort through that, and he intercedes for us. As we pray, he takes the things that we prayed wrongly, and he filters them out. Praise God for that. Because I wish that people, when I said things to them, would be able to filter out the things I shouldn't have said. Any of you feel that way? But God does. You don't have to put it all together. You don't have to say all the right things. He sorts through it. And then, also, when you voice those things to him, sometimes he goes, that wasn't right. You ever say something out loud that you thought? In your head, it sounded awesome. And then you say it out loud, and you're like, that's terrible. Well, sometimes when we pray things to God, he changes our heart as he goes, that sounds terrible. He shepherds our heart back to where it needs to be. He purifies it, and I love that because we need it. Oh, gosh, we need it. So then, verse 10, he says this. He says, the altar needs to have atonement made. 
Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. And the word that I mentioned last week was kafar, and that's the base word where we get our word kippur. So how many of you have heard of the, the, the celebration of Yom Kippur? That's the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was that one time a year where they would make atonement and they would take the blood from that particular offering and put it on the other implements to make them holy. It was making atonement for the entire nation. Now, right now in Israel on the Day of Atonement, instead of making atonement with the sacrifice, they have a day of fasting. They have a day of contemplation. But it doesn't fulfill this offering. They just need Jesus. He is our atonement. He is our covering. He is our cleansing. And the word kippur I talked about last week, which is kafar or cover, sounds similar. That In the Old Testament, they would have their sin covered for that year, and then the next year they'd need it covered again, and then the next year they'd need it. It never stopped. But Jesus, once and for all, didn't just cover our sin. He covered it. And then he cleansed it by his blood because his blood is pure and it's a human sacrifice. And so he is our atonement. And so the altar needed atoned and so do we and so do our prayers. They need to be purified by the blood of Jesus. And so in verse 11, we move on to the the ransom. Verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, He spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number... Then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them. And there may be no plague among them when you number them. So I told you, I'm an armchair theologian. So when you're reading the Bible and you see a a word or a phrase repeated, uh, pay attention. God's repeating it on purpose. So he says, when you number the people. Now, when would they number the people in the history of Israel? That's right, in the book of Numbers. And so that's all about the census that God took, numbering the people. Now, the point of numbering the people had nothing to do with strength. It was just God revealing how faithful he had been to his promise to Abraham. I'm going to multiply your descendants, God said. As many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. Try to count them. You can't. And that was his point. I'm going to multiply your number. And so how are they to recount God's faithfulness other than numbering them? And yet this privilege of counting the people was only God's privilege. He took it very seriously. He didn't let just anybody. So here's the problem. God numbers them to show that he's been faithful. We number people because in strength we think that things are successful. How do I know if I'm successful as a parent? We look at the number. We look at the percentage, the grade. How do we know if we're successful as a church? We look at numbers. Except that's terrible because if you could have a thousand people, but if none of them are actually personally walking with Jesus, then that's not success in the eyes of the Lord. He cares about our heart. In the nation of Israel's history, they would be tempted to find their strength in numbers as a military, right? We do that. We measure success with numbers. Lots of people are coming. It must be good. No, lots of people go to terrible things all the time. And, and trust me, I was one of them. Some of the concerts I go to, you're like, this is awesome. It was terrible. 
It was blasphemous. And, and so the reality is, here we have that God says, number them. But he's saying, number them for my purposes. Second Samuel chapter 24, David takes it upon himself to number the people. And there's a plague, just like spoken of here. It wasn't for the yearly census to provide for the tabernacle. He says, collect a half a shekel of silver, which was one-fifth of an ounce of silver, which in 2018 was about $8.25. Probably now it's about 100 bucks, don't you think, with the economy? Uh, okay, so I thought that was funny. You guys don't. All right, I get it. But the point is, is that we've not been redeemed with silver. First Peter 1.18, he says, it's awesome because we haven't been redeemed with silver or gold or something else that perishes. We've been redeemed. Our ransom price, the cost, the price for our life is Jesus. What man would only pay 30 pieces of silver for, the price of a slave, God paid for us with the price of his only son that he loves. And so he says, when you are numbering your people... Uh, don't number them for your purposes, but instead take an offering. And this is a way for every person in Israel to offer something to be a part of this meeting place that God's built. He says this money is going to pay for the maintenance of the tent, the place where I'll meet with you, the place where your sins are dealt with. So everybody gets a piece in it, but notice, doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how poor you are, 825. That's what it's going to cost. Half a shekel, or I can't, the fifth ounce of silver. But worship is about what? Worship includes our time, our talent, and our treasure. What do you treasure? Are you willing to give it to God? That's true worship. And so it, it has a multiple fold use, this offering, but it also is just a very practical thing. Those guys that are making offerings, those guys that are applying blood and oil and incense and all that, they got to be able to have something to eat. They got to be able to have a livelihood. And so God used this way of worship not only to provide for the tabernacle, but also for the people that serve in the tabernacle. It keeps the place up practically. Interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24 through 27, uh, Peter was asked by those who collected this same temple tax. He said, uh, hey, does your ma- how come your master doesn't pay the temple tax? And, and Peter goes, well, uh, y- yes, he does, because he didn't want to look bad, right? And then he goes to Jesus, and Jesus, before Peter can say anything, says, what do you think? Who, who gets to collect taxes in this life? And, and he said, you know, uh, so that our tax, our temple tax, which was never meant to be called a tax, our offering to the Lord as part of the census, he says, I want you to go fishing. Peter knew how to do that. First fish you catch, open its mouth, and there will be a coin in there. And interestingly enough, Jesus didn't say, pay my temple tax, then you deal with your own. He said, I'm not only going to pay mine, I'm going to pay yours. I'm going to fulfill the law for you, Peter. I'm going to ransom your life. That's what the picture is. Portraying what he was getting ready to do, which is, ransom everyone's life that's willing to receive that gift so jesus didn't come to get rid of the law he came to fulfill it and he fulfilled every single piece and so we see this here at the ransom verse 17 actually i'm going to finish reading the part about the ransom because i skipped over those verses 
Uh, this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 garaz. And doesn't that clear it up for you? How much is a shekel? 20 garaz. Oh, okay. All right. Thanks for that. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So this was their military numbers. This was the people that could serve in the military. It was also at this point the age of accountability, the age where you grew up and had to give. Verse 15, the rich, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. And when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So this picture of cleanliness that's needed to serve God. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. And so we have this bronze basin that's outside of the tabernacle. I have there for you a picture of what it might have looked like. But I want you to notice that it's outside of the tabernacle. So in order to go inside and serve God, there had to be cleansing. But before you could wash your hands... There's an altar outside of that. You can kind of see it in the corner of that picture, the altar of burnt offering. And remember from last week's study, that altar is to deal with sin. So to be cleansed of sin is one thing, but to wash your hands apparently is another thing. And so many times, if you've been a part of church, we spend a lot of time talking about needing to be born again, to have our sin dealt with, to be a believer in Christ for our sin sacrifice. But once we get saved, we no longer need an offering for our sin. Now we need, instead of eternal cleansing, eternal forgiveness, we need daily cleansing, sanctification. And so when the priests would serve, now that their sin's been atoned for, they would go to this place, they'd wash their hands and their feet. When? All the time. In between sacrifices. Before they went in, after a sacrifice, they needed continual cleansing. And so it's between the altars, between the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense. If you don't have your hands washed, you don't get to go pray. Remember that incense altar is for prayer. That's the symbolic gesture of prayer. And so sin's dealt with. My hands are washed, and now my prayers to God are unhindered, and they go up before the throne. But it was regular washing that was needed. Now, you and I don't have a big uh, trough out there full of water to wash our hands in, do we? I didn't see any of you washing each other's feet on the way in. But you still wanted to come in and worship. You still wanted to come in and offer up prayer. So in order to do that, it's not about anymore washing our hands in this, 
It's about having our hearts cleansed of a guilty conscience. And that happens, my friends, by what? Confession. Confessing our sin. And in James chapter 5, he says something that you should start to practice is confessing your sins one to another so that you may have your sins forgiven, and in some cases, so that you may be healed physically. Confess your sins, yes, to God, but sometimes for it to really click, we've got to confess it to a person, and it doesn't have to be a priest, folks. There's a piece of this where for one another, we kind of get to be priests. We get to bear one another's burdens. We need to lay these things at the altar and say, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry I sinned against you this morning in the way that I spoke to my family. I'm sorry in the way that I've represented you. I'm sorry that I just became the cussing Christian for five minutes. Whatever it might be, to confess and have our way cleansed so that now that we've dealt with our own sin, we can go in and pray about the things that are going on in our lives and God receives it as a sweet aroma. As a matter of fact, what's interesting about confession and about cleansing and about this daily renewal that God gives us the opportunity to do through Jesus is that when they made the original bronze laver, they needed bronze to do it. And in Exodus 38, verse 8, God told them through Moses, women, I want you to bring all of your mirrors. And they didn't have glass mirrors like we do. They had bronze mirrors. And they would polish them to the point that they would have a reflection. They'd be kind of able to see themselves and get their hair did or whatever they were doing. But the cool thing is, is that God said, through Moses, bring your mirrors. We're going to melt them down and we're actually going to make uh, this bronze laver which makes me think that God cares more about purity than he does about vanity. We are so good at keeping it looking clean on the outside, and in the meantime, God's like, deal with the inside, please. Don't fool yourselves into thinking that you're cleansed because you look so good. God sees through all of that. He cares more about spiritual cleansing than getting it all like it looks like it's together. And in John chapter 13, you know this story. Jesus at the, in the upper room, he got down on his knees and he said, I, I, I'm going to wash your feet. And as he started to wash their feet, Peter said, hey, 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 you shall not cleanse my feet. Perhaps he was thinking about John the Baptist who said, there's one coming after me whose who's sandal strap I'm not even worthy to take off. I'm not even worthy to be his lowliest slave. And then Peter here is having his feet washed by that Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. And he's like, whoa, 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 not me. You shall not wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, unless I wash you, you can have no part of me. And by the way, if you're here today and you're coming to Jesus, but you've not allowed him to wash you by confessing your sin to him and letting him cleanse your heart, you can have no part in him unless he washes you. And he said, you don't need to take a bath. You need me to wash your feet and your hands because the way you've been walking, it's not okay. And the things you've been doing with your hands, not okay. I'm here to cleanse you. And if you don't let me, you can have no part in me. Take him up on that. It'll be the best decision you ever made. Promise. So here, Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 22 
Remember, we've talked about this from Hebrews. He's already talked about the, the boldness we can have to enter into the presence of God. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That sprinkling's not water, folks. It's blood. Our hearts have to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to be transformed, and he gives us a new heart. Takes away the out, hard outer shell and gives us a heart that's sensitive to him and it's pure. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. He gives us a, a, a new conscience and then our bodies washed with pure water. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and making all things new. And I tell you what, I need that daily cleansing. I need things to be made new. And Jesus says, I want to do that for you. We can enter boldly then, after having our conscience is cleansed and then our hearts made completely pure, we can come in because we've been washed, not by trying to clean ourselves up, but letting him minister to us and cleansing us. And then, Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, what's really cool, and I have to turn there because I geeked out a little bit on this. Revelation chapter 15, we're in the heavenly scene. God's showing John the heavenly throne room. And in verse 2, John says, I saw something, in, he's in the throne room of God, something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory of the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So what's interesting about this sea is that when they, there's no dimensions in Exodus on how big to make it. But when you get to Solomon's temple, he makes a bronze laver so big that it's held up by 12 bronze oxen. It's huge. Solomon made things bigger than life. Like he, was, he went to the nth degree. But it was God's heart because when you get to heaven, you see that this bronze laver full of water is no, no longer full of water, but it's called a sea, which is a little bigger than a laver. It, it means a sea, and it says it's of glass. And it says there, those who had victory in this life, when they arrive there, they're standing on the sea, not of water. They're not walking on water. They're walking on the finished work, the finished cleansing. That water cleansed them. No longer any cleansing needed in heaven. It's done. It's complete. We're completely pure in God's sight. And now we stand on the sea. We're standing on the finished work of Jesus Christ, cleansed. It's just a reminder. Hey, what you're standing on is something that's already done. And so I love this. We see it even in Exodus 30. So, verse 22 through 33. I'm going to put on the gas. We're going to finish the chapter. Verse 22 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, take for yourself quality spices. Don't mince on it. Don't use cheap stuff. Get the quality stuff. 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. We see them giving that to Jesus at his birth. Half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels. 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. 500 shekels of cassia. Interesting, cassia. Many commentators say that it, it actually smells like buttered popcorn. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Most of us like that. Uh, according to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hen of olive oil, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit holding it all together. 
And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Wow, struggling. And, And with it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting. Oil anointing something is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming upon it in the Old Testament. So anoint the following, the, me- the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and its utensils that has the showbread, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense that we just described, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, the laver and its base. You shall set them apart or consecrate them that they may be most holy, and whatever touches them must be holy." And you shall anoint Aaron also and his sons. So everything that's to be used to do the work of the tabernacle is to be anointed with this same oil, which would be an aroma in the presence of God. It all, they all have different uses in the tabernacle, much like you and I. We all have different ways that God has called us to serve him, and yet we all smell the same. I love that. We all smell the same to the Lord. And then he says, You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on man's flesh. Because guess what? Man's, in the presence of God, the flesh of man shall never glory. Nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It's holy. It shall be holy to you. And whoever makes any of it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. By the way, in the same way, the Holy Spirit is only for the people of God who have come through Jesus Christ. There are those that look for the anointing and there's counterfeit people that say, I'm called by God and they've not been anointed by God. In Acts chapter 8, a man by the name of Simon came to the, uh, the disciples who were out praying for people that they'd receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon was once a sorcerer. He wanted power. And so when he saw the disciples laying their hands on people and them receiving the Holy Spirit, he said, give me this gift also. So when I lay my hands, but when they respond to him, apparently he offered them money for this gift. And he said, your money perish with you, Simon. That you think that you could purchase the gift of God instead of receiving it by faith. Beware of counterfeits. Beware of those who deceive and try to receive the gifts of God for money. Anything that God gives us is a free gift. It's not something that you can purchase with silver or gold. It's not a parlor trick. It's not... God's power is real and it sanctifies our lives and makes us useful in his hands. And in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, speaking of the aroma that would come from this anointing oil, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, says this, We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing as well. To the one, we are the aroma of death, leading to death. We're a reminder that this life is temporary and there will be judgment. And to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. But who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as in sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. 
And so we have the anointing oil set apart only for the holy things. And then as we close, we look at the incense. We talked about the altar at the beginning. And now we're talking about what's offered on the altar at the end of this passage. So the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take sweet spices. Stacte, probably said that wrong, and onica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense. There we have again one of the gifts offered to Jesus at his birth. With these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts. So now we have the recipe. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer. So there's a particular person gifted to put these things together. But notice that the incense is to be salted. Jesus said to you and I, we are the salt of the earth. Salt speaks of purity, purifying. It speaks of, um, you know, uh, keeping things from going putrid. It, it has a, an effect on meat. You put it on there and it keeps it from rotting. Salt also adds flavor. And if you put it in a wound, even though it does burn, it, it brings healing. So you are the salt of the earth, and the, the, the incense is to be offered with salt. It's to be pure, not mixed with any other thing. And it's holy. It's set apart for God's use. And then he says, in order to offer it, verse 36, you shall beat some of it very fine. Now, that sounds great for incense, but what about you and I? You ever feel like you're taking a beating? You ever wonder why? It says, you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. Do you know what incense is? Incense is. Incense. The purp- Do you know what the, in- the purpose of incense is? There it is. It, it's all prepared to burn. It's literally, its only purpose is to burn. He says, you shall prepare it by crushing it and then put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meaning where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord and whoever makes any of it to smell it, just to smell it, just to make some for your own enjoyment. He says, that person shall be cut off from his people. And the word there, cut off, means to be put to death. That aroma is only for God. Your service to God, you are incense. You are seasoned with salt. You are crushed for God's purposes. And if God is allowing you to be beaten, it's because without the beating, the incense doesn't put off the aroma that Scripture says is a pleasing aroma before the throne of God. And so what's interesting is, maybe some of you this week have been feeling like you're taking a beating. Maybe it feels like it came from people. And no doubt, it probably did. Maybe life itself is beating you down. You're getting pressured. And maybe, as you're getting beaten, it feels like the heat's turned up and all kinds of nastiness is coming out. But the reality is, is if you'll receive it, that those beatings and the heating, that the heat being turned up on your life, if you'll, instead of letting it bring you down, realize that it's actually meant to inspire you and produce in you something that comfort doesn't.
when I'm getting beat up, you know what I do a lot more? I pray a lot more. And then I see things more clearly. And the, the dross and the impurities and all the stuff that really doesn't matter, it gets burned away. And then as it's burned away and I'm offered before, as I offer myself to the Lord, then it exudes an aroma up before the God's throne. And then Stephen, one of the first deacons, as he testified of Jesus Christ and how he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament before the religious leaders, what did they do to him for that service? They stoned him to death. And as he was beat and as he was crushed, there was a man there. We call him Paul. His name, his given name was Saul of Tarsus. He watched the beating of Stephen. He experienced the aroma of the burning up of Stephen's life. He was offered up entirely. He was smoked. He was done. He was killed. And as Paul watched that, something in him clicked. And he saw Jesus for the first time in his life. And because of that sacrifice of Stephen's life offered up that way, Paul's life was converted over time. He was goaded by the Holy Spirit and he gave his life to Christ and he ends up sharing the gospel with most of the known world at the time. One life, completely offered, leads to one life, completely a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before God, which is our reasonable service. And as we offer it up through the beatings, through the temperature changes, guess what happens? We prove before people that don't know Jesus what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. And as we burn, the world has the opportunity to see Jesus all over again. And the cycle continues. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony of Stephen. We thank you for the tabernacle that in every area of service, in every area of offering, every minutia of detail that you are continuing to show the Israelite people what it means to truly worship God in spirit and in truth. And though in so many ways their eyes would have been veiled from the person of Jesus, and then when he showed up personally, they still didn't see him. I thank you that even in his offering of his life entirely up to you, that it meant that we were ransomed, that we were washed, that we were cleansed, that we were atoned for, that we are cleansed daily, and that that ministry of the high priest, our great high priest, continues, and we are living testimonies of his perfect, finished work. Thank you, Lord. Would you please... Take what we studied today and apply it to each one of our hearts individually so that we can take part in the eternal celebration of all that you've accomplished. May our lives be living sacrifices. May those that don't know you see you in us. And may we transform the world that we live in until you crush it up and burn it and start the new one. Lord, we thank you for eternal life that we'll experience with you, but we offer our lives up to you until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.